when there was a bad rice harvest, um, you know, one of the only ways to then survive was to go up in the mountains and, and find, you know, whatever you could eat essentially, which was sansai. And so, um, you know, even, even sort of like during po- uh, World War II and just after World War II, um, that was a way that, you know, people, people f- staved off famine. Welcome back. You're listening to The Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Here at Japan Forward, we bring to our audience issues that are of real importance in and about Japan from the perspective and context of people inside of Japan, as expressed or captured by them who truly understand the nuances of culture, issues, and current events. In today's session, our guest is Daniel Moore. He's an entrepreneur, author, and founder of Active Travel Japan. Among the many enterprises he's involved in, Daniel is particularly well known for working with local businesses and travel agencies to create unique tours and adventures for visitors. Let's listen in. Thank you to our listeners and followers for joining us again for our weekly Twitter space. Every week, we're seeing more people join us for this live conversation and appreciate it very much. Before we get started, let us introduce ourselves. For anybody unfamiliar with us, we started Japan Forward in 2017 with the goal to reach global audiences, sharing stories, opinions, and editorial content from Japan. Our mission, shared by our supporters and followers, is to raise awareness of the Japanese spirit, culture, and tradition. And now let's introduce some of our editorial staff who are also in this Twitter space. So let's maybe start with Naito-san. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, thank you, Daniel, uh, for today uh, being with us. And uh, I'm really excited. Uh, my name is Yasuo. I'm editor-in-chief of Japan Forward. And I was in, even though I was in Russia, Ukraine, and uh, US, uh, Britain, Cambodia, uh, well, the, you know, Japan is my mother country, and uh, I was so excited when I read uh, your story uh, about the Sansai party uh, because I'm a, I'm the Sansai freak as well. So <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm really you know <laughs> hoping to hear from you a lot of new stories uh, t- uh, today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Then we have Ariel next. Hi. Um, so yeah, I'm a, a journalist at Japan Forward. I've been here uh, working at Japan Forward since uh, 2018. Um, I started covering anything to culture, travel, but then also recently more politics, society, a little bit of everything. There's some films in there because I like film and so on. Um, but I was, uh, yeah, I was introduced to Daniel uh, through common friend uh, who you know and I heard that he had done so many things to do with travel and he's such an expert on Nagano specifically Um, and so yeah I'm really excited to be here and hear more from him. Nice and lastly I'm Galileo I'll be the host um, slash moderator for today and have the pleasure to introduce our guest. Um, Daniel Moore is an entrepreneur author and founder of Active Travel Japan. Among the many enterprises he has been involved in, Daniel is particularly well known for working with local businesses and travel agencies to create unique tools and adventures for visitors. He's based in Nagano, Japan, but I believe he's now in Aichi. 
Um, so Daniel's latest article on Japan Ford is Back to My Roots, Foraging Wild Foods in Japan's Mountains. So Daniel, welcome to our weekly Japan Ford Twitter space. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So before we get into some questions from the team, could you share a little bit about your background and how you, I guess, got into what you're doing now and maybe of what, what, yeah, maybe what you're, what you're currently doing too. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, thank you for the introduction, by the way. And, uh, I, well, if I go all the way back, I, I grew up in Japan, uh, for 16 years from zero to 16 and, uh, went to public Japanese school in Tokyo and Nagano. So, I, uh, I, I guess I'm, I, I go way back <laughs> in Japan. Uh, but I decided to come back when I was 25. I spent a summer or sorry, I spent a winter season in, um, Shigakogen in the mountains of Nagano and working as a hotel front front desk person. And, um, just really loved the culture and loved being back in Japan and felt like I wanted to be back in Nagano. So I decided to move back and I didn't want to be an English teacher. <laughs> so I was looking at some different options. What could I do? <laughs> um, besides that. And I, I found, uh, walk Japan, which is a, uh, tour guiding company. They, they do sort of extended, uh, hikes and walks throughout Japan, a lot of historic roads like the Nakasendo and Kumanokodo. And so I worked for them for three years as a freelance tour guide and, um, sort of got some experience doing that and then decided, uh, to work for a few different other, uh, travel companies around Japan, mostly doing outdoor and walking tours as well. And, uh, in 2018 into 2019, I started active travel Japan. I wanted to organize some of my own tours and, uh, take people. Um, my concept is sort of taking people places that they wouldn't find on their own. So, um, you know, the places that I really love going to, that, um, I wanted to take international tourists to that, you know, there's no, maybe not even a website on some of these, uh, ryokans and hotels, but, um, really interesting places that, that Japanese people love. So, um, started doing that. And then of course, 2020 happened and, uh, taking people around Japan wasn't really an option anymore. So, um, I had just purchased a house in Nagano. And so I spent about a year fixing that up and turning it into an Airbnb property. It's uh, near the snow monkeys. And I started doing some inbound travel, uh, consulting. So doing monitor tours and sort of advising local cities and prefectures about how they can, uh, bring more tourism to their, to their areas after, uh, the pandemic is over. So, and then, uh, and then, yeah. And then I was connected to Japan forward recently. I, I had been writing some for, uh, outdoor Japan and, um, just personally, and, uh, really love writing about Japan and places that, um, I find unique and interesting. So, uh, sorry if that was a bit long, but that's kind of my, how I got to <laughs> where, uh, we are today, I guess. No, oh, that's, yeah, it's a good way to set the, um, the theme for today. I want, I was 
hoping that you touch upon travel because yeah. um, I think that's what most of what we'd like to hear about from you. Mm. Um, maybe my first question is that recently the government announced that tourists will be entering Japan again, though mm. it's a capped limit. Um, when you heard this news, when you found about it, when you found out about it, um, what went through your mind initially? And has things will this change things for you? Yeah, well, first thought was finally, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. I just, it's just, I don't, I mean, of course, people have different opinions about, about COVID and measures and all that, but I'm of the opinion that, you know, there's COVID in Japan too. So mm. blocking international tourists to me hasn't really been doing anything except hurting the economy. So, um, I'm more of the opinion that, you know, Japan should open up quickly and allow more tourists. Mm. Um, I know the cap is still 10,000 per day, which, um, you know, I, at some point it's like, I, I don't know if 10,000 or 20,000 really makes much of a difference, um, in terms of, you know, it's going to come in from 10,000 people as much as well. So, um, but yeah, definitely thankful that something is happening and that, that steps are being taken, um, to open up eventually. And, um, hopefully, you know, I, I guess hopefully, you know, consistently there's more and more opening up and this is sort of the first shot in that process, I guess. So with um, the new rules of the borders opening up, have you, have people been getting in touch or have you seen some of your, like, you know, your websites or your businesses get attention? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of inquiries. Uh, most of my customers are repeat customers. So they've been waiting for two years to come into Japan. And, you know, they've been saying as soon as uh, things open up, please let us know. We want to, we want to go. Um, some of these trips, you know, we already had the itineraries planned and people were already set to go. And, uh, when the pandemic happened, so we're just basically extended those trips by three years. Um, I've also had a lot of inquiries at my Airbnb about, um, a lot of Australians actually who want to ski in Japan and, um, they're starting to book and you, you can immediately tell the difference because, you know, Australian customers say, okay, we want to stay for, you know, two weeks at your property. And <laughs> most Japanese people can't, unfortunately they can't take that much time off. So, yeah. um, it's nice to get some of those long <laughs> stays in as well. Um, once tourism is back. Yeah, especially if it's like this, the winters, like the snow season mm. for Australians, it's like the end of the like you know end of the year, which is summer back in Australia. Yeah, it's oh. their summer season, and um, I think like December, January is their summer holiday, long summer school mm -hmm. holiday. So, yeah, a lot of Australian families come over for that time. Because that's what I did when I first came to Japan. I finished <laughs> university. And uh, okay. I think from December to February, I was in, yeah, I was in Sapporo for like a month and a half. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's kind of different 
seasons of foreigners, I guess, in, yeah. in the winter season alone, because after that is over, February is kind of Chinese New Year season. Mm-hmm. And so you get a lot of, you know, Singaporean and Taiwanese and mainland Chinese. So it, it kind of goes in cycles through the winter, probably through the whole year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could jump in here, um, I uh, always enjoy reading your columns or the articles you've written for us um, because, you know, you focus a lot on traveling off the beaten path, I suppose. Um, and uh, I was wondering, you know, why is you mentioned it a little bit in your introduction, but why is it that you focus on this sort of content? And maybe if you could share like some of the most obscure places where you've brought some of your uh, customers, like are there any like episodes that come to mind? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Um, well, I think when I look at um, you know, like, I guess Japan, especially now, there is a lot of information, English information on the main areas. I mean, if, you know, if you're going to Kyoto or Tokyo or, you know, Nikko or something like that, I don't really think you need someone like me because there's plenty of English information and you can, you can read about it and you know, everything you can find it on Google maps and blah, blah, blah. So, um, what I think I offer as a guide is the ability to take people that maybe they wouldn't find, or they find a little bit intimidating Mm -hmm. and, um, really sort of provide a window into those places and, maybe there's not English speakers. So, you know, they, even if they could technically drive to those places, they couldn't actually talk to anyone or they would have a really hard time talking to people. So, um, so I, I kind of provide this access or this, this connection between, between people and places. And so, um, yeah. And that, that's, I don't, I don't want to say like when there's so many tourists that feels inauthentic, but you know, it's, it's more interesting to be the only foreigner amongst a, you know, group of Japanese or, you know, you, you sort of feel like you've discovered this hidden, this hidden gem. If you're the only, you know, person that looks like you in that place. And, um, so I realize that's, that's not possible everywhere, but I sort of like to, um, take people to those places that, um, that they feel like is a really authentic Japanese experience that they wouldn't be able to do anywhere else. Um, so to answer the second part of your question, I think (laughs) I've been to some very obscure places, but, um, there's a village in Nagano, it's called Akiyamago and it's, it's in Sakaemura, village. Um, but you have to drive in the winter. There's only one road in and one road out and you have to drive through Niigata prefecture to get to this village in Nagano. Mm -hmm. And the whole village has about, it's, it's kind of broken up into five villages, but the entire place has 200 people in it. Um, one elementary school student (laughs) in the entire village. Yeah. So they, they actually had to close down the elementary school recently. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, um, you know, this place we, we used to go with walk Japan 
and um, there's only one accommodation ryokan in the whole place and the the owners were so happy that we would go there that they would um they would drink with us around the fireplace the irori every every time we went mm-hmm. and um yeah they, it was just and mm-hmm. and then getting to translate you know um for for my customers saying you know mm-hmm. these when when this village you know 50 60 years ago it was only gravel roads and it wasn't paved and so they would have to if they ever needed anything they would have to snowshoe down um mm-hmm. which is an hour drive so you can imagine like uh, several all day trek just to get supplies down in the main village and then walk back up and um so yeah just places mm-hmm. like that um oh they also serve bear uh, hot oh. pot there. Mm. Yeah. There's still a, a tradition of, um, mm. matagi hunting. Mm. And so they, they actually eat all the parts of the bear that they, wow. that they kill and yeah, they serve bear hot pot in this place. So it's, it's not the best, uh, meat for sure, but it is an experience. <laughs> so that yeah. sounds like an incredible experience. Never eaten bear, I have to say. So definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, Once in a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I'd like to move uh, now to the theme of the last article that you published with us. And I think Naito-san will appreciate this because it is about Sansai, right? So the translation, best translation would be for mountain vegetable, but um, yeah. it's very lightly point out it's difficult to translate because, you know, it's a yeah. sort of expression in itself. Um, and you mentioned something which I thought was really interesting and how, you know, its origins and so on and how it kind of went out of fashion, but now it's becoming more fashionable again. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Sansai and, you know, like what's its appeal and how was your adventure of Sansai? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, this, this book called uh, Eating Wild Japan was really helpful. And, and that's where I, I actually didn't know the whole history of sensei, I guess, going back, uh, before reading that book, but essentially, you know, it was a, it was a way that when there was a bad rice harvest, um, you know, one of the only ways to then survive was to go up in the mountains and, and find, you know, whatever you could eat essentially, which was sensei. And so, um, you know, even, even sort of like during po- uh, World War II and just after World War II, um, that was a way that, you know, people, people f- staved off famine. Um, and so I think the older generations, you know, had that painful memory associated with it. And so they wanted to forget, you know, those hard times. And they sort of said, you know, we have all this, you know, meat and vegetables and, um, white rice and, um, you know, cup noodles. Why, why would we want to eat something like, you know, that's basically just from the ground. And, um, they sort of saw it as this sign of poverty. Um, but like a lot of things, I think, um, you know, it goes in cycles. And so this thing that used to be associated with poverty and not having enough, um, is now a delicacy and it's a rarity. And so, especially in the cities, I mean, you, you know, you can't 
just go out and <laughs> pick something from a park or something. So, um, it's actually now a delicacy and, you know, there's, I don't know exactly how many, but probably uh, at least a hundred different types of edible sansai, um, that you can forage. And, um, there's, you know, the most common way of preparing it is tempura for sure. But, uh, after that, you know, there's all different ways of boiling it or, uh, baking or, you know, stir fries or, um, just tons and tons of different ways. And people are getting creative with how to make it and different ingredients. And, um, so I, I think it's a really interesting culinary development. I mean, um, you know, just, and, and kind of, I'm sure it's, and I think I mentioned this in the article, but it's, it's not at all unique to Japan that there are foraged foods, but I think the extent to which Japanese do still eat sansai and foraged foods, um, makes it a little bit unique. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just think it's a really interesting part of Japanese culture that's, uh, worth preserving and, and trying to promote, um, because it is, yeah, like I said in the article, super sustainable, super healthy, I think, way of, of feeding yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, I read the article, Daniel, and, uh, you know, it is surprising that your, you know, Sansai article is now in the trending articles. <laughs> Number is five. It? Oh, yes. I didn't know. Oh, you didn't know? No, no. <laughs> you should see our homepage and, you know, uh, it's it's number five. So I was so surprised that, you know, huh. how can, you know, the people who understand you, the Sansai. Well, like, yeah. uh, as, as I've already told you, I'm the Sansai fan. I'm, I go yeah. mountains to collect some, those, you know, uh, the, the king of Sansai, Taranome yeah. or Kogomi or, you know, the, the other, you know, those mountain vegetables. Uh, but uh, I was wondering, you know, uh, to write up this type of story uh, makes people think, you know, Japan as a poor country like North Korea. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, as a delicacy, it's, it's uh, definitely very, you know, tasty. And uh, I really, you know, admire that, uh, you know, uh, we recommend that vegetarians, maybe vegans mm. can eat it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, of course it, it depends on how it's prepared with the other ingredients, but yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. I mean, sansai by itself is just, yeah, things growing out in the wild. So, um, yeah, I hope, I don't know. Um, I I don't know if people think Japan is poor (laughs) because they eat sansai, but, um, but no, it's, it is interesting. And, I mean, I, I, I love Nagano and, um, you know, I, I sort of talk a lot about Nagano, but, um, it's interesting because Nagano's other delicacy, soba or buckwheat was also, um, considered sort of this poor person's food because you could only, you could grow soba in areas that couldn't grow rice. And yep. so even in bad sort of mountainous cold climates, you could grow soba. And so Nagano was kind of seen as this, you know, backwater poor place, you know, they eat sansai and soba. And now those are like two of the biggest delicacies in Japan. <laughs> um, you know, you might, you might pay a couple thousand yen just for, um, a soba and, 
sansai tempura meal in tokyo so it's <laughs> it is kind of interesting how it, it goes through cycles you know everything yeah that's a that's a great business from zero to make money yeah <laughs> that's right it doesn't cost i mean soba costs money but um sansai doesn't cost any yeah that's right there doesn't take any resources to <laughs> to grow so yeah <laughs> That's I thought great. it was also an interesting point of how Sansai, like you mentioned, which you so you yourself had said, oh, I didn't really think about this before, how mm. people who uh, pick Sansai regularly have mm. to think about the sustainability of it, right? So they have mm. to say, okay, we can't overpick and that sort of thing, which is something that we're not used to thinking about, right? When we just buy stuff in the store. Um, so I guess that that's also like, a, I don't know, it's a different way that we can also enjoy this because you know, we're appreciating it. Like, what do you think? Yeah, it was, it was super interesting to me too, that, um, you know, I had the impression you sort of just go in and take everything in sight, you know, and, um, you know, that it's just sort of like a weed. So it just, everything just grows back automatically every year. But, um, and some, some things are like that. I mean, there's some sunset that's almost, you know, invasive where it's just so ubiquitous all over Japan that, you know, you could never possibly take enough, um, yomogi, which is mugwort, um, or warabi is, uh, fiddlehead fern, you know, th those things <laughs> I think are pretty much indestructible, um, and have, have been here since the time of the dinosaurs, but, but other ones, you know, are quite rare or maybe only grow for a couple of weeks or, you know, um, if you don't, if you don't leave one shoot for leaves to, to grow up, then the plant can't actually get light and can't feed itself and can't, um, grow new leaves the next year for us to eat. So, um, I, it is pretty interesting how, um, these people, you know, cult sort of, I guess it's not cultivated food, but you do sort of have to, uh, work with the forest and nature to, you know, cultivate and protect so that these resources keep providing us with the same, you know, food and, and sustenance. So, um, yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting part that, that I wouldn't have thought of before. Would Sansai have like a cycle of like this different growth throughout, throughout the year? Like for example, there's summer Sansai versus there's only certain Sansai you can harvest in the winter or autumn. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, most sansai is picked in the spring because it's the leaves and you need to eat most of these things when it's still soft and not too bitter. So when, when it's summer, a lot of things, you know, get very green and hard and, um, start to get inedible. But, um, yeah, for example, like, uh, fuki, fukinoto is the, it's the first shoot or bud of the fuki plant. And it's really good. I mean, it's like a little flower bulb almost. And you, you make uh, tempura or um, something called fuki miso, um, which is kind of you stir fry this plant into miso, maybe put a little bit of chili and you eat it on top of rice. And it's, mm. it's really good. 
Um, Mm. but then when that plant gets a lot bigger, it has these big stems and huge leaves, sort of the size of a dinner plate. And, um, they cut the stem and then they, they, uh, uh, I'm forgetting my English, but they, they simmer the, uh, stem of the Fuki plant and then Mm -hmm. use it in a different way later in the year. So there are, there are a lot of things like that, where maybe you can eat it one way this time of the year, but later in the year, you have to do it a little bit differently or, um, technically, you know, mushrooms are not sansai. Yeah. Um, if, at least in the Japanese word, but they are foraged foods that come from the mountains and most, uh, mushrooms are picked in the fall. So there is kind of a cycle of, um, you know, different things that are edible at different times throughout the year. And, um, winter there's at least in Nagano, there's a lot of snow on the ground, so there's not too much edible, uh, sansai then, but pretty much the rest of the year, there's something you can go out in the mountains and pick um, and eat. Um, Just quickly, um, one of our team members joined, um, but before she um, introduces herself, I wanted to ask quickly was, do you have a particular favorite way um, sansai is prepared that you'd like to eat? I know you mentioned tempura, but Mm. was there anything? Yeah. Um, Recently, my favorite has been Working for Walk Japan, I always, um, there's a ryokan in southern Nagano in the Kiso Valley that makes um, koshiabura, which is, um, it's a type of leaf, uh, really kind of fragrant, almost like a spice, I would say. Um, and they make, mostly it's made with tempura, but there's, you can actually mix it into rice and uh, add some salt and that uh is really delicious we we always had that at this ryokan but that was the only place that ever served it so this time i i found some koshiabra and i was like i have to make this uh or at least look up a menu and try so um that was that was quite delicious with with some miso soup at the end that sounds amazing yeah (laughs) Susan, you're, thanks for joining us. Hello? I think she's on mute, but I don't know if she's going to speak. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, hold on. <laughs> oh, I think it's probably Ofuro went off or something. <laughs> um, uh, um, so, did you want to take a question, Galileo? Um, yeah, like, okay. I'm here. Just, Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, Daniel, nice to meet you. Um, nice to I meet love you your too. Yeah, Thank I, you. I bought the Eating Wild in Japan. <laughs> Great. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I've, I w- I've actually done a lot of uh, something similar to Sansai, but to picking the, the native herbs and uh, medicines in the Northwest. Oh, great. Uh, and, you know, so the kind of what really interested me is the sort of advice that, that uh, you were given that you should never pick more than a certain amount uh, of what's there because you have to ensure that it's there the next time uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, that's just such a really valuable advice when people, you know, go out to the mountains and say, mm. oh, this is so pretty. I want to pick it all and take it home. No. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. That's... Just, 
just to take take a little bit for your own taste and then know that yeah. next, next time it will be abundant and uh, yeah, uh, then you, that's mm. that's a good point because um a lot of times you know as a tourist you don't it doesn't really resonate you know there's no next year you're just eating for today but the locals are you know they're they have to <laughs> you know deal with the bad harvest next year if you overpick so that's that's a really good point you know for the people who are there in year in and year out um you know they have to make sure that they don't overpick any at any given year because they need the harvest the next year so yeah and to me the whole idea of that that you're just um you're you're being respectful of the mountains and of uh, mm. the natural foods that are growing there um, because they've fed people and nourished uh, people in the area for eons. And um, so, you know, being selfish and sort of saying, well, you mm. know, I'm here, I want this now is, uh, is something that we should all just keep in mind that that's really not the attitude and it's not going to create a welcome atmosphere for people who want to go find these wonderful vegetables. Uh, Absolutely, I, I, yeah. I just think it's amazing. I thought your trip was terrific and I loved your pictures. Um, and <laughs> I was really hungry. At the end. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I'll turn it over to others, but I know you have another trip coming up. And so I don't know if you've talked about that yet or not, but I'd be interested. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So now we talked about Sunsai. So I thought that we would move to the other article that you wrote for us. So when you talked about your trip, uh, well, initially searching for Yamazakura, I suppose, but then it became a sort of looking for flowers in the wild in general. Um, and I thought it was uh, it was interesting to read that because you we talk about Japan and it's often associated with Some Yoshino, which actually is a very polished plant, right? Like mm. it takes a lot of effort to grow it, which is very different to just flowers that are and you know cherry blossoms that grow in the wild um and so i thought it was a different way of appreciating nature i suppose um so do you have maybe like suggestions on places to go that where people can appreciate the different side of nature i guess a bit more of a wild appreciation of nature as opposed to what we think of i don't know some yoshino cherry blossom for example yeah yeah so um my I mean, research. you can talk about the trip that you did, even in the article, if that. <laughs> if that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my actually, my research for that article also came from another book um, called uh, Cherry Ingram. And that that book is fascinating, too, if anyone um, is looking for a good read, because um, he was this English gentleman who just loved... Uh, cherries and had a huge collection at his home in England. And um, actually during leading up to and during World War II, the Japanese government actually cut down a lot of other types of cherries and replaced them with Somei Yoshino because they um, they all bloom and all scatter at the same time. And it was sort of used as this symbol of the Japanese people and how, you know, you need to sacrifice yourself for the emperor and all these, all these sort of things. So, um, anyway, really interesting book. Um, and I, I love so many Yoshino trees too. I don't, I hate to bash too much on those, but, um, there are hundreds of other types of cherries and ume plum blossoms and um peach blossoms and uh so 
I think the nice thing about that is that they all bloom at different times and they bloom at different altitudes. And, um, even within cherry trees, you know, those bloom at different times or some cherries stay longer than others. Um, so the best way to see, to guarantee seeing something is to just go out walking and, um, especially if you climb a mountain or something, you're at different altitudes. If you go a long distance, then, you know, if you're, if you're climbing in Japan sometime between March and June, you're probably going to see something flowering. That's really beautiful up in the mountains. And, um, I think that's, that's the beauty of it. You know, you know, you don't really know what you're going to see, but, um, I hate to guarantee, but you're probably going to see something that's really nice. And, uh, you know, I, I think that sort of just stumbling upon those things, uh, way up in the mountains is, is a really nice way of, of, uh, enjoying nature too. Um, actually when I, when I initially talked to Susan about this article, the first time I was going to go look for Yamazakura, which is sort of, mm. uh, wild cherry trees. And you can, in the spring, you sort of see them way up in the mountains scattered around just these little patches of pink blossoms in the mountains. And, uh, I was going to go look for those, but again, I was a bit early for that, but, uh, thankfully the plum blossoms saved me. After that trip, uh, uh, Daniel, I went to Tochigi and actually did okay. see Yamazakura. Uh, okay. And of course, yeah, they're so charming. They're, they're completely yeah. different than the Someyoshino, but they are, they have this, um, very natural, Mm. Uh, beauty to them that that I think is just really lovely and we were so excited to see them and was regretting that you missed them <laughs> yeah yeah it's nice too because um the planted trees all bloom at the same time and they're all uh they they all bloom with their petals first and then the leaves come out and that's kind of one of the reasons why you know, like Yoshino was planted so much, but the other varieties, a lot of them bloom and start to have green at the same time. So you actually get a lot more color and, um, I think they're, they're really beautiful in their own way. Yeah. It'd be nice for you to write one of those articles, Sakura, Sakura articles for next season. Um, yeah. I think that will give us, I'll definitely learn a lot. I used to live in the countryside of, um, Japan. And mm. had similar explanations of different types of sakura, but it'd be really nice to see from your perspective and point of view about the, the variety of sakura. Yeah, I would love to. Um, let's see, we're about 40 minutes. Does anybody else have a question, Susan? Well, yes, I wanted to. Um, I know. I know that Daniel has another um, activity that he's going to be writing about shortly. He might want to talk about that before he submits his article, but. Um, you know, every every season has its own uh, in the mountains has its own charms and beauties, and uh, I we hope that next year that you might be able to do a story about the snowshoeing, mm. uh, and that maybe in the summertime you'll find uh, 
medicines and and other green flowers and and things in the mountains that uh, people don't really notice when they go hiking because they're like trying to take the next step and get to the top of wherever <laughs> Survive. they're going. Yeah. <laughs> you know, get to that tea hut that's just up there. Um, yeah. But but if you look around, there's just so um, there's just so many wonderful things to see. And so um, I love your stories, and I I just really hope that you'll like keep writing. You know every month or every whatever period you can um, about the, the discoveries that you're making, because I think it helps educate people about the mountains as well as about what's available in Japan. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would love to continue as well. And, um, you know, I'm like you sort of uh, mentioned, but I'm actually uh, in Aichi prefecture right now, learning to surf and, um, part of, part of the reason, I mean, I, one of the reasons is I, I just, um, I snowboard a lot in Nagano in the winter. And so, uh, when I, when I can't snowboard for six months, I get, I get a bit, uh, um, impatient, I guess, for, <laughs> for my outdoor, uh, adventure ad- adrenaline junkie side. And so I wanted to surf just to have another activity that I can do in different places, but also, um, I, I really do love the ocean as well. And my experience in Japan has been very mountain heavy. I've, I've lived in Nagano for most of my time in Japan. So, uh, I do, I think for me, at least the ocean side is, is a little bit unexplored territory. And I, I want to, I want to explore, uh, go deeper, I guess, to, to <laughs> excuse the pun, but, uh, into, into the, um, oceans of Japan and, uh, and, and learn more about that, about that side of the culture, because it is, it is such a huge, <laughs> sorry, somebody's sorry. hungry. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, no. She doesn't like that I'm talking to people she can't see. <laughs> yeah, that that's basically it though. I I uh I'm I'm exploring some new territory, I guess. While I'm here. Daniel, so. Um you uh like yeah, like to touch on your your business, Active Travel mm-hmm. Japan. And maybe I'm, I think some listeners might be interested in too. Is that you said you you help local businesses or like offices with um, with with planning and adventures? Um, how did you get involved with that? Yeah. So essentially, from my time working at these different travel businesses, um, like I said, I, I worked for Walk Japan for three years and then started freelance guiding for probably four or five different outfits. And, um, and, and, and that was amazing. Um, but I wanted to be able to show people exactly what I wanted to show them and, and, you know, sort of my favorite places, because, um, I think the, I guess maybe the problem is that people don't really know what they don't know. So Mm -hmm. they, you know, they think, Oh, you know, we want to go to Mount Fuji because it's famous, but really there's an even more beautiful place to, I mean, Mount, you know, Fuji's beautiful, of course, <laughs> it's just an example, but, mm. um, 
you know, they read about something or they hear something. And so they decide, Oh, we want to go here. But really if they, um, leave it to a guide who knows the area, then they might get an even better experience. So, um, my, my tours are sort of a combination of, you know, I sort of ask, okay, what, what kind of activities do you want to do? What, what, type of things do you want to see? What level of accommodation? Um, and then let me recommend to you, you know, what, what I think you would really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if there's some places that they absolutely have to see, then of course I include those places, but, um, it kind of my, a lot of my customers give me the space to say, okay, you know, we want to know what you recommend. So please, you know, make a custom tour for us that based on these things that we want to do. So, mm-hmm. uh, I find that, you know, people are really happy typically with that. And, um, it, it's a lot of repeat customers too. So it's nice that I, after once, after one tour with them, I, I know, okay, these are exactly the types of things that they're going to be looking for. I can, I can cater the tours to them. Mm. So. Should we take some questions from the audience? If anyone wants to ask anything, you can just raise your hand in Twitter space. There's an icon that you can press. It's like, it goes like that. <laughs> so, if anyone has any questions, no? Night to sound, Ariel? Does it night to sound if you have anything? I don't know. Oh, well, no, no. Uh, well, I, I just want to, you know, mention that, uh, you know, the, the problem is that uh, the Japan is still not, uh, you know, completely open. So, uh, mm. And uh, when it comes to the, you know, full open state, then, uh, you know, your business will grow, I think. And uh, mm. we really wish that uh, uh, it happens uh, in a very nearest time. Let's push our government <laughs> to try <laughs> yes. to open up. As yes, as please. Well. Otherwise, uh, the other small business uh, is experiencing very hard time. And uh, mm. so this is we need to uh, get over uh, and to to step up to the next stage. Uh, yeah. So, uh, well, that's just, just a comment. And, you know, I, I hope uh, you survive and you uh, give a very, uh, the great, uh, you know, consulting to other people. And uh, we, we we're really hoping your uh, great articles too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, just, just follow up, that, follow up with that. So thank you, Daniel, for your time and speaking with us today. It's really refreshing to hear your stories about, I guess, some traditional aspects and elements of your travel style and business. Um, particularly, I res- resonated with what Susan had already mentioned and Ariel had mentioned is that, you know, don't just over harvest um, the mountain vegetables, but just take what you need and you really need to let like the land continue to sustain um, the people who actually live there. So I think that's very that's a very important point, and that's something that uh, I'll remember from this talk today. Um, but before we wrap up, do you have any announcements or anything you'd like to share to our listeners? Uh, oh, sorry, th- this is me, me, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, from my side. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, let's see. Um. <laughs> like like your next article. Okay, yeah, that's that's true. Uh yeah, I'm going to I'm going to write about 
uh, surfing. And again, I kind of from the same perspective as the other ones. Well, I've, I've been thinking about, you know, what, what perspective to come at it from, but, um, I think like other aspects of tourism in Japan, you know, uh, the main areas for surfing are sort of famous, but the other places are relatively unknown. So, um, there are a lot of sort of minor small places, uh, for surfing and for other activities that are really amazing in Japan, but aren't really known so well yet. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to introduce, um, maybe a place that, uh, most people haven't really heard of for, for surfing before. Um, other than that, yeah, I, I, I hope again that, uh, tourism comes back to Japan quickly, of course. And, uh, when it does, I would, I would love to, uh, host any, uh, Japan forward reader or listener and, uh, yeah, I think. Or stuff. How about stuff? Or stuff, of course. <laughs> I was gladly coming work Sorry, that was that was a given, of course. But. Uh, and then finally, yeah, I mean, um, well, staff too, of course. I I have a Airbnb in in Nagano, and in the summer, especially, it's nice to get away from the heat in the cities and uh, have a barbecue at uh, in near Shigakogen in in the mountains of Nagano and um, sort of refresh in the countryside. So that's uh, one of my favorite things about about living there. All right. So, so thank for you. any uh, for any maybe people who are listening who are now really want to go to Nagano, how can they get in touch with you? Or do you have a website? Right. So active. Yeah. Japan. It's uh, yeah, it's activetraveljapan.com, and my property is actually called Active House. So if you if you I think if you search Google on Google for Active House or Active House Snow Monkeys or Shigakogen, you should be able to find a link to my Airbnb. Nice. All right. So thank you again to Daniel. Please follow Daniel on Twitter. And look out for his articles on Japan Forward. His recent article was Back to My Roots Foraging Wild Foods in Japan's Mountains. Um, so, listeners, thank you for joining us today. Follow us, Japan Forward, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel, and this Twitter space will be distributed on Spotify and Apple Music. So, make sure you subscribe to that as well. At Japan Forward, we are looking for contributors and writers. Get in contact with us if you want to submit a written piece. Let us know if you can also translate English to Japanese or vice versa. If there's any other skill set that you have that you think would add value to our vision, please don't hesitate to get in touch. We will do this Twitter space again next week, so keep an eye out for the announcement. Thank you for listening to the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Visit our website for more information regarding our podcast and other news on Japan. Catch you next time.